Our reading is taken from 1 Chronicles chapter 28. 1 Chronicles chapter 28. It's an account of David gathering together, really the leaders of the entire nation, right before he passes the rule, the monarchy over to his son Solomon. David is old now, and he's going to uh, die. And then Second Chronicles starts with the rule of Solomon. So at the end of his life, he has some kind of farewell comments that he makes. I want us to just read chapter 28, verse 1 through 10. First Chronicles 28. Now David assembled at Jerusalem all the officials of Israel, the princes of the tribes, and the commanders of the divisions that served the king, and the commanders of the thousands, and the commanders of the hundreds, and the overseers of all the property and livestock belonging to the king and his sons, with the officials and the mighty men, even all the valiant men. Then King David rose to his feet and said, Listen to me, my brethren and my people. I had intended to build a permanent home for the ark of the covenant of the Lord and for the footstool of our God. So I had made preparations to build it. But God said to me, you shall not build a house for my name because you are a man of war and have shed blood. Yet the Lord, the God of Israel, chose me from all the house of my father to be king over Israel forever. For he has chosen Judah to be a leader. And in the house of Judah, my father's house, and among the sons of my father, he took pleasure in me to make me king over all Israel. Of all my sons, for the Lord has given me many sons, he has chosen my son Solomon to sit on the throne of the kingdom of the Lord over Israel. He said to me, your son Solomon is the one who shall build my house and my courts, for I have chosen him to be a son to me, and I will be a father to him. I will establish his kingdom forever if he resolutely performs my commandments and my ordinances as is done now. So now, in the sight of all Israel, the assembly of the Lord, and in the hearing of our God, observe and seek after all the commandments of the Lord your God, so that you may possess the good land and bequeath it to your sons after you forever. As for you, my son Solomon, know the God of your father and serve him with a whole heart and a willing mind. For the Lord searches all hearts and understands every intent of the thoughts. If you seek him, he will let you find him. But if you forsake him, he will reject you forever. Consider now, for the Lord has chosen you to build a house for this sanctuary. Be courageous and act. Let's pray. We come to serve you, to lay our praises before you this morning. Our everlasting God, our King, our Maker, and our Redeemer. We come to you because you turned your face toward us. We come to you because you commanded us to come and meet you on a throne of mercy. 
And even though that seems to us to be impossible to believe, that the one being who knows us perfectly would still offer us a love that we could never earn or maintain. But you have drawn every reason for mercy from within your own heart and not because of our worth, not because we promise that tomorrow we'll do better than any of our yesterdays. We come to you through the finished work of your son who blazed a trail between God and man. The one who perfectly kept your law. So when the believer comes, we're not afraid of an everlasting condemnation anymore. The one who provided a righteousness like a robe, a clothing, a suit that we put on. To be united to your son forever and ever really is. A, it is the only real life. We come to you because you've opened our eyes. You've softened our hearts, God, opened our ears. You freed us from the chains of tyranny, the, the lies that living for us is the only way to happiness. But God, when we come, we are so much more impressed with you than we are with us. And we think of the work you did outside of us and not just the work you do inside a person. You have chosen the son of David, not Solomon. You have chosen Jesus of Nazareth from the tribe of Judah and the family of David to be the everlasting king whose throne will never be toppled, whose crown will never be passed to the next person. Solomon failed ultimately to perfectly obey you. He failed to be faithful to you with all of his heart. But Jesus of Nazareth did not fail. Even now, God, we pray, look at your right hand where he sits, accomplishing your good pleasure right now, entrusted with the rule and the governing of all things for all time. God, we praise you for appointing this king, this everlasting Messiah, as the one who would build a house for you, not a physical temple that we have to travel to, but a living, breathing, spiritual union of every believer with your son, Christ, the cornerstone. God, we pray that you would open our eyes to see beautiful things, wonderful, wonder-filled things from your word today. We pray for those who, in this little fellowship, so many facing very serious health issues. We think of John Montague and Greg Elder, among others. And we pray that you would use even the difficult times to accomplish extraordinary acts of kindness. And for the hurting and stumbling believer that keeps all of it behind uh, a curtain, God, you know, sleepless nights and plaguing questions. So will you meet them? And will you distinguish yourself from the gods of our culture by the way you deal with your children? Let the world know that you really are and you are as good as you describe yourself to be. Help us this morning as we sing or respond to your word. 
help us as we sit and have lunch together. God, we want it to be all for him. So help us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. We've been looking at the theme of discipleship, not one Christian helping a younger Christian to move forward in the Lord, but each individual believer being related to Christ in that living connection and each believer being involved in a one-on-one apprenticeship, really, with Christ on the job training. And we've talked about the sufficiency of the discipler, Christ, the greatest of teachers, and we are approaching the theme of the perfection of the path. So we have a person that we're focusing on, but there is a very definite path for our feet. The person is sufficient, no matter how weak the believer feels, no matter how confused you may get, if you are a follower of Christ, alive in Christ, conquered by Christ, hoping in Christ, then you have the perfect teacher and the perfect path. In preparation for taking a a long and serious look at the path of Christ, what is it to follow Jesus Christ in these specific areas, the areas of right and wrong? We've been looking at how Christ responded to the word of God or how Christ handled the scriptures. And we're going to talk about that again this morning. I hope that in the coming weeks, we're also going to be able to look at how Christ responded to the Father in prayer, because those two things are fundamental. I was kind of thinking of holding prayer till after we looked at the path itself, but I think we're going to have to look at it first. That You know, the, the, the two great chains of supply, um, two great means of grace we have as individuals is the Word and prayer. So how did Christ study his Bible? How did Christ pray? And if you're going to follow Christ, he's going to be teaching you to follow those things, follow him in those areas. And we'll also look at, in the coming weeks, following him with other believers. And we'll talk about that more on the Wednesday evenings. I'll be, Chuck has allowed me to have uh, the next four Wednesday evenings. Uh, I'll be out again at the end of August, so I appreciate him giving me that extra time to talk about that. But this morning, I want us to return to the theme of Jesus of Nazareth and how he handled the scriptures. How did he interact with the scriptures? We know that he obeyed the father perfectly. We know that he loved the father's word. We know he memorized the father's word and quoted it. But if that's all you know about the way that Jesus interacted with or handled the scriptures, then you might feel that it's a bit difficult to know, so how am I supposed to imitate Christ in the way that I use the Bible? There has been a lot of confusion about this and the whole issue of obedience and saved by grace, and what about the commands of God? What about the Old Testament? Is, is the Old Testament just you know out of date and has nothing to do with the believer? I hope you don't think that. Is the Old Testament God a different God? We would never say that, but is that the way you think of him? 
that he's kind of grown up by the New Testament. And so when you read things in the Old Testament that bother you, do you say to yourself, well, but that's Old Testament. Because of the confusion, I think it would be good to kind of review what we've looked at in the past couple of months and add some more material. So what I want us to do is I want to give you a list of, I think it's five, five really essential things we have to agree on, every Christian here, if we're going to imitate Christ with regard to this issue of the path or what we called last time I was with you, the map. Christ has handed us a, a map, a moral map, all right? So not a map to a place, but a map that shows how to walk in harmony with the Father. How do I obey in the everyday choices of life? Is there a map for that? Well, actually there is. It's the same map that Christ used. So I think it would be good for us to sum up in a list what we've been saying over the last weeks. Second, I want us then to get help from an Old Testament psalm, which I think is just custom-made, perfect, for helping us have an indirect view. So not a direct look at Christ like we have in the Gospels, but an indirect view of what it would have been like for Jesus of Nazareth to handle the Word of God or to respond to the, to the Word of God. If you could have watched him growing up, how did he treat his Bible? Uh, that would be wonderful, but since you can't, are there other ways we can see that? And I think this psalm is helpful, and we'll end with just one aspect of that. Well, let's talk about some fundamental things that are essential. If there is disagreement at this level, let's think of you know the starting line. If at the starting line we have different views of what it is to live the Christian life, and you know if we at the starting line are a little off. And let's say, you know, we, we're disagreed with each other. We're, we're in some way disagreed with God and his word. Then when we get to the passages that talk about specific application, I think that you'll find that we're very divergent. So want to make sure that we are agreed on some fundamentals. And then later in the year, as we look at some of the specific commands of God, hopefully regardless of how difficult we might feel it is or not, hopefully we will have a set of principles that we can kind of hold the course with. So let me give you those. Number one, if you take notes, hopefully I'll stick to my notes. If you have my notes, I'm, I am rearranging the numbers. So if you don't have my notes, be glad because it'd be less confusing. All right. Number one, Jesus's determination and delight that fashioned his choices, that fueled those choices, was his, it was his love for the Father's will. Jesus of Nazareth viewed the will of God, that those indisputable rights of God to tell us what to do, the perfect wisdom of God in that will, the unstained holiness or purity of God in what he's given us to do in that will. All of these were before the heart and mind of Jesus of Nazareth, and he delighted in them. 
No other claims on planet Earth could compare to the claims of his father. No other person's desires would be allowed to compete with the desires of the father. No other task on earth could distract him from the task of doing the will of his father. No other path was so beautiful to him, so perfect, so worth everything. And every deviation from the will of God, if you think of it again as a path, every deviation from that path of obedience to the father was in his eyes accurately seen as containing everything that is foul and destructive and corrupted. Now, we have talked about this a lot, so let me just give you a couple of reminders. We saw this in the Old Testament. For example, Psalm 40. There is a prophecy in Psalm 40 talking about the coming Messiah. We are Sure, it's talking about the coming Messiah because Hebrews 10 quotes this passage and says this was talking about Jesus. Let me read you a portion of that psalm, which the writer of Hebrews does not include. He's emphasizing one aspect, so he doesn't include all of chapter Psalm 40, verse 6, 7, and 8. He skips one part, but that part is very important for our emphasis, so I want to point it out. Psalm 40, verse 6, 7, and 8, talking about the Messiah. Let me just read verse 7 and 8 to you. Then I said, Behold, I come in the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. So that's Old Testament language. Did you catch it? Jesus, in this prophetic passage, is speaking hundreds of years before his incarnation, before he comes to earth, and he says, Behold the scroll of the book, the Old Testament. These were scrolls, not books with pages like we have. We would say, it's written on the pages. Look, read your Old Testament. Its pages are full of me. They told you I was coming. And they tell you something else. When I come, I will delight in the will of my Father, His law is written on my heart. The picture here of delight and then, uh, you know, of the law being kind of stamped on the heart of the Messiah makes it very clear that when Jesus of Nazareth did what the father required for righteousness sake, it was out of love. It was his delight. We see in the scriptures In John chapter 6, that Christ explains the interiority. Okay, well, we know that he obeyed the laws. We see that in, in the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are very clear. But what about the heart of Christ? And we see that so often explained in the Gospel of John. But do you remember the passage in John 6 and verse 38 where Christ said, I did not even come to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. So the purpose, the whole reason for him being man and God in one, the whole reason for each day of the life of Christ, every day he wakes up, is this. I am not waking up today and getting dressed and going out to do whatever he had to do. I'm not doing that so that I can do my own pleasure, but so that I can do the will of my father. Why? 
because I delight in that will. It is like he has written it across my heart. So that's our first essential point. I think we can all agree, every Christian, are we agreed that this is the defining trait of Jesus of Nazareth? As a man, this is the goal, the the purpose that everything was brought into harmony with. His goal, his purpose, was not to do his own will, but the will of the Father. And that was his delight. Second essential fact, Jesus' delight in and determination to do the will of his Father was not merely referring to the last three years of his life in the public ministry, but it referred to his entire human life. This is obvious, I think, theologically, because we know that for Jesus of Nazareth to be the sin offering for sinners, he cannot himself be a sinner. He can't be a lamb that is spotted. He can't be dying for his own crimes and also for the crimes of others. He cannot provide a righteousness for any believer if what he provides from his life is flawed then what he offers you would be flawed. So for the Christian to stand before the eyes of God above blame, for the Christian to be able to read the law, and even though we see as believers, I do still, at points, I do still fail. Why are you not condemned? Well, we say, because in Christ, I am justified. Wonderful. I am declared right with God. That could not have happened. If Christ's delight in doing God's will was for the last three years, but the first 30 years of his life, before he was baptized and began his public ministry, those 30 years, he didn't delight in the will of God. He delighted in his will. He woke up every day and said, I don't know, what do I want to do with my life? I mean, when I hit age 30, those years, well, I mean, they're going to have to be that's, that's like a sprint, you know, and I'm going to have to be completely sold out to my, to my father. But these first 30 years, I, I can live for myself. Now, we know that's not the case. We see it in Scripture. Christ daily, he says, was awakened. Isaiah chapter 50. Daily, the father awakened me. He opens my ears and I was not disobedient. When we talk about Jesus' delight in the Father's will, we are not merely talking about Him loving and determined to do what God wanted them to do for three years of public ministry. We're talking about all 33 years of His life. So every stage of His human life is a stage in which He is, according to that capacity, He is perfectly, sinlessly responsive to God, consecrated to God, delighting to obey his father. It was the delight of the Lord Jesus Christ as a child, as a teen, all through his 20s, without one exception, one day. It has always been and always was and 
really always will be the delight of the Son to do all the Father's will. When we speak of Christ doing the Father's will, we could kind of divide it into those two categories. The general common commands of God, which apply to everybody. You think of the Ten Commandments, that God hates these things and loves these things. God forbids these things and and calls us to do these things and all the specifics of the Old Testament. And you think of all those wonderful ways of showing love to God with all of his heart, soul and mind and strength, all of the ways that Jesus would have loved his neighbors as he loved himself. All right. So there's that that common, ordinary day to day obedience. And then there is the specific obedience. Just those three years where the father gives the son a unique task to reveal God to the world, to be the sin sacrifice, to satisfy all the claims of God's law on behalf of his people, to be our mediator, our representative. Are we agreed with the second point? When the scripture says, That Jesus Christ delighted in the Father's will and did all the Father gave him to do, which he says in that final great prayer in John 17. I have done all your will. Are we clear that he's not talking about just three years at the end of his life when he was publicly ministering? But that must include all 33 years of his life. And not just the specific commands at the end. Third fact. The place where Jesus found the will of God. For all of life. Not just the last three years. Was the scriptures. The Bible. For him the Old Testament. And at the heart of that Old Testament. Was the revelation of God's will. In the moral law. What God delights in. What God has chosen for his creation. For us. In the 10,000 normal choices we make in life. Not the big spiritual ones. Not not when you're giving a Bible study. Or when you're in the hospital room. And you're trying to know what the right thing to say is. Or. And it's not those big significant looking moments, but in the common moments of life, like the first 30 years of Christ, not just the last three, not the spectacular ones. God has revealed what his good pleasure is, what his will is, what his what pleases and displeases him. He reveals that. In the moral law. Now when we think of the Old Testament. We can think of the moral law. And we can contrast it. There are other aspects of God's law. Let me just give you one other. The ceremonial law. There is a difference there. The moral law is based in God's character. Certain things are right. And certain things are wrong. Because of who God is. And that doesn't alter because God doesn't alter. And the work of Jesus on behalf of sinners has not altered those fundamental things of right and wrong. They are an everlasting reality. 
It is never right to worship other gods. It is never right to steal. It is never right to deceive. It is never right to commit adultery. You see the picture. The cross of Jesus did not erase those or adjust those so that now that we are saved by grace, it is pleasing to Lord for us to be idolaters and adulterers and liars and thieves and killers. Now, I know that we know this, but there's a principle behind it that we've got to agree on. When God explained in his moral law what is right and wrong in his eyes, that is unchanging, foundational. It doesn't matter when you lived, Jew or Gentile, old covenant, new covenant. It is the unalterable statement of right and wrong based in who God is. Ceremonial law. That's an aspect of the Old Testament law that is not based in the unchanging character of God, but based in the command of God. So he gives a specific command. And before God gave a specific command, all right, doing it or not doing it wasn't a matter of right and wrong. So think of some of the things that Chuck has talked about in the past Wednesdays from the book of Leviticus. There were very, very specific rules for how you did sacrifices. Before God explained that, those weren't a matter of right and wrong. The Jews with circumcision. So the Jewish boys are circumcised. When God commanded Abram that his children would be circumcised, the offspring, and that would set apart the Jews. That would be a mark that they belong to God. But before God gave that command, Abram and Abram's parents and Abram's grandparents, they, they weren't circumcised. It wasn't a matter of obedience until God spoke it. There are some things that are right or wrong because God has given you a clear command. This is wrong. This is right. And in the ceremonial law, there are a lot of those. And because they are not rooted in God's unchanging character, but rather on this great unfolding plan, they are limited. We don't do sacrifices anymore because the work of Christ has fulfilled that. And it's done. And to continue to do annual sacrifices in hopes of adding to Jesus Christ would be offensive to God. So when we talk about the commandments of God today and in the upcoming weeks, we are not talking about these ceremonial commands. We are talking about the moral commands where God says, these things are fundamentally offensive to me. And these things are fundamentally pleasing to me. Because he's the standard of right and wrong. Now, where do you find that? Well, in the Old Testament, you find that summarized in ten commandments. But those are just summaries, like ten categories. And then you also find general principles. So that for the Jew living their life, they would come across certain circumstances. You know, you can think of them. They happen all the time. As a Christian, you, you think, I'm not sure exactly what to do in this situation. The Bible doesn't speak about this specific thing specifically. So you have general principles. Well, here's the principle. How would you apply it? And also in the Old Testament, there are a lot of specific applications for us. These are the general summary statements, the Ten Commandments. These are what God loves and hates. 
And these are some specific ways that that would change the way you live. The place where Jesus found what the will of God was for those first 30 years. In particular, just kind of thinking of those. Was the moral law of God. That's the map that Christ followed. So we can agree that Jesus obeyed and delighted to obey the will of God all 33 years of his life. That will is not limited to the last three. It's the will of God every moment, every day of all 33 years. And that will was discovered in the Old Testament, in his Bible. All right, number four, and if you're following my notes, it's your number five, but just hang with me. Number four. Number four is this. Let me find it. There it is. The manner in which Jesus handled the Old Testament, his Bible, that moral map, the way he handled that is also the way that every follower of Jesus, every imitator, every disciple of Jesus will need to handle it. Now, again, we're not talking about ceremonial law. We're not talking about doing things that were peculiar to the Jews. We're talking about those fundamental right and wrong and how Christ in reading this Old Testament, how did he respond to that Bible? And how can you follow him in responding to your Bible in the same way? I guess that should be obvious to us, but it is hard for us to think of Jesus as truly human as well as truly divine. For the Christian, you know that we've talked about this in the past years, that loving and adoring Christ as the God-man, it seems to me that when we write it in our mind, the G is always capitalized and the M is little, you know. And so we think, well, he's really God and And he's also man. And the man is kind of like just an appendage. But Jesus of Nazareth is that mysterious union of a true human body and soul with God. All the fullness of God in the person of his son. And as a true human, he has the same tools. He had the same tools that you have today. And he had to use the same methods, which is very encouraging for a Christian. How did he know what pleased the father? Well, was he born with a spiritual antenna that he automatically knew everything without any effort? And the answer to that is no. We know that Christ had to be taught as a human. So as a two-year-old, as a seven-year-old, as a 15-year-old, as a 28-year-old, He had to do the hard work of learning. And he was a perfect student, sinless at every stage of his maturing. But he used the same path or the same methods as you have to use to walk the same path that you're going to have to walk. As a true human, like us in every way, except our sin, He had a Bible that he responded to and the way he responded to it, since it was as a human, 
and not just automatically knowing everything effortlessly. That's the pattern for you. Are you a student of your Bible in the same way that Jesus was a student of his Bible? Following Jesus has to mean more than saying, I want to wake up tomorrow morning and live for the will of the God who saved me. I don't want to live for my will any longer. It has to also include, by the grace of God, I will wake up and I will find that will day by day, the same place that the Son of God found that will day by day, And if God will help me, then I will respond to that book in the same way that Jesus did. Imperfect imitation, yes. Mixed with our sin and stumbling and confusion, of course. But that will be the path for the believer. Let me give you the last one we need to agree on before we go to our psalm. And that is that Christ has already given us, in case we feel, well, this is just too much. Christ has already given you the two fundamental things you need to follow him in the way you respond to the scriptures. If you're going to imitate the way he responded to the scriptures, then you're going to have to have these two things. All right. Number one, you're going to have to have a new heart and that heart amazingly, resembles his heart. And number two, you're going to have to have the same map that he had. So let's talk about the heart. Go back again to Psalm 40. I delight to do your will, verse 7. Your law is written on my heart. Okay, so just keep that word picture in your mind. How would you describe the human response of the, of the Lord Jesus Christ to his father's commands. Delight. Like it was written, tattooed on the heart. There is in the God-man, there is this inclination, perfect, unrestrained, uninhibited. You know, this perfect bending of his heart, of his deepest desires, always Toward the Father's will. You're going to have to have a heart similar to that. Do you remember what Paul said about our hearts? It's not very flattering. In Romans 8, verse 7, Paul says, Because the mind is set on the flesh, all right? He's talking about us before we're Christians. Because your mind was always set on this world and what you deserve and, you know, the flesh, it's, it's not talking about this. It's just talking about living this life in this body and in this sinful environment with you at the center of everything. That sinful way of living. Paul says this, because the mind is set on the flesh, because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God. I mean, it's obvious that if you're living for yourself, And you come across a God who wrote a book that says you should live every moment for him. One of those has got to go. You can't have both. You're going to be hostile to him or surrender. Then Paul goes on to say something more. He says, for it does not, the mind of man 
does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. So that's the old picture. If you're a Christian, that's the old you. If you're holding Christ at arm's length, being in a church doesn't affect that. That's you now. I don't really get it. I don't understand why people think they should live all for Christ. I mean, isn't it enough to live these things? Is it enough to avoid certain things or to pick up certain habits? But all for Christ? And the Christian says, yes, all of life for the glory of God. Okay, but that wasn't the way you used to think. If that's what you want now, the old you before the work of God in your heart wanted nothing to do with that. And really was so bent on self, it is impossible to imagine you, the old you, wanting to live for God. A new heart had to be given in the new covenant. Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 33, that very famous statement. Jeremiah is telling the people who are in trouble under God's judgment. He is telling them that one day God will send his son, the Messiah. And he will bring about such a marvelous rescue that everyone who is in this new covenant, this new contract of love, this new this new contract of relationship between God and man, the new covenant provides something so much greater than the old, as good as it was. And one reason that's true is because the new covenant guarantees that every single person in the new covenant has a new heart. Now we know that that's exactly what Jeremiah was talking about because in Hebrews chapter 8 verse 10 and again in Hebrews chapter 10 verse 16 the writer of Hebrews quotes those passages and he explains the change that God works in the heart of every follower. Listen to Hebrews 10:16. The writer is actually quoting Jeremiah. This is the covenant that I will make with them After those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws upon their heart and on their mind. I will write them. Do you see the similarity in what the new covenant promises for every believer and the description of Jesus Christ? Christ's self-description. Look in the Bible, read the scrolls. They talk about me. I have come. I delight to do your will. Your law is written in my heart. Now the description of the Christian. After those days, I will put my laws upon their heart and write them on their mind. It doesn't mean that the Christian is a sinless person whose heart is so perfectly in tune with the father that we could never grieve him again. That's not our condition right now. But it does mean this. That God has done something in the new birth. He has made you alive. Responsive. And he has written his law on your heart. Much like the law was written on the son's heart. That was perfect. Yours is imperfect still. And throughout the rest of your life. To put it the way Paul puts it in Philippians. You will be wanting to work that outward into every area of life and you don't 
have any reason to despair because it is God who is at work in you, Paul says to the Philippians, both to will and to do his good pleasure. God is at work in the Christian continually in that new nature. He is constantly stirring in the Christian a desire to do the will of God and the ability to do the will of God. Like Jesus of Nazareth, though imperfect, your heart as a Christian, the new nature, is inclined. It leans, all right? It is not a blank slate. When God rescues a person, he doesn't just kind of say, well, let's just forget about all those years that preceded. I was 20 years old before I embraced Christ. So at age 20, he didn't say, well, John, let's just clear the kind of the record of your sins and uh, let's just kind of wash you on the inside. And so we can just kind of get a fresh start and you can make the choices that are better this time. But no, God gives you a new nature and in the new nature, by the work of his spirit, you lean a certain direction. Physically, if the Christian looked like what they were on the inside, we would all be a people that leaned a little. And you lean or you are inclined to obeying God. That's why John writes in his first epistle that the commands of God, obeying God, they're not a burden to the Christian. It's not effortless, is it? But it is natural in the new nature to want to obey God. And when we don't obey God, everything on the inside starts to jar. Everything is... You know, nothing is working smoothly. All the engine wheels are hitting each other in the wrong way and, and the motor. And we, we think, what's wrong? Well, you, you can't live like that anymore. And when you do obey God, whether it's difficult or not at the time, there is peace within. Things are right. Christ has given a new heart to every person who is a follower of his. And that new heart resembles his. Not sinless like his, but there is something in the new heart, the new nature, that does love to choose God's way above your own. He is also giving you the other thing, the map. And we talked about this two weeks ago. He has given you the map that he used. It is the same map. So he has not renegotiated the map. We don't have two maps in our Bible. You know, you, if you have a Bible that's a study Bible, most Bibles will have maps in the back. And that helps us because we're, you know, we're generally not very good students of Bible geography. So if you read a passage and it says they went down to Chorazin, you think Chorazin, Chorazin. Anybody know where Chorazin is? Well, let me look. What if you had a Bible that had no words and just two maps? Do you think of it as old map, new map, old map? It was a good map. Oof, it was a strict map. But that map's completed. That part of the journey's ended. Now for every believer from the time of the resurrection of Christ to the end, he's added a new map. And so it's a totally new path because it's a new covenant. That would be a really wrong idea. It's actually the same map. There are some differences. We'll get to that. But it is the same road or the same path that he walked. 
Christ gives us the same map, the moral law of God. When he saves us, do you remember what we've read so many times in the past weeks? Saved by grace through faith, not of ourselves, so that you won't boast. Right? It's through faith. Even that's a gift. And then he says, Ephesians 2.10, that we have been saved as God's workmanship to do good works, which he's prepared beforehand. He's already mapped out right and wrong. And you can read that map. And that's for you. And now you want to walk that map. Or you think of um, another passage like in Titus, that he, Christ, not by our own good works, but by the work of Christ, Paul writes to Titus, we have been saved. He gave himself to purchase for a people all for his own. They just belong to him and they are zealous. They lean in for good works, for obedience. If we say that we have been saved and are being saved presently by this king, Jesus. It is better to show it than just talk about it. And that brings us back to James, where James says, you talk about faith. Show me your faith. Well, if all you have is words, that's not worth much. I'll show you my faith. It is faith. But it expresses itself in obedience, not perfect obedience, but real obedience. If we are followers of Jesus Christ, then we have the same map and the new heart. And we can live for him. That, I think, is a a thought that we struggle with. Because when you read the New Testament, and if you just, particularly if you read quickly, you find Paul talking about all of God's Old Testament law, you find him referring to that law so many times in very negative terms that you might think, wait, 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 I thought that the New Testament did away with that law. That law is cruel and harsh and unkeepable. And now now there is no law. So now there's no map. We We just wander with Christ. But is that really the way that the New Testament people followed him? Paul does have to speak very negatively of the law because he's dealing with Jews who misunderstood and misapplied the law. So they twisted the map up. They made it into something it wasn't. You know, they took it from a a path of walking with God to a ladder where they could climb up and make themselves the the right people, the, the better people, the people that God is impressed with. But if we understand the law correctly, and we see how it's applied in the New Testament correctly, then it shouldn't bother you to think, so I'm going to be walking the same path that my Lord walked? Yes. What's the path? Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Okay, no problem there. What's that look like? Well, look at the map. The moral law of God. What has God commanded? What has he forbidden? That will help you to know, how do I show love to God? How do I show love to the people sitting next to me? Now, there is something different about the map. Okay? You're different. You're right with God. The law is satisfied. But the moral path, 
is not different, except in this way. Maybe I can use two illustrations to help. There is a lot of additional information. Not new paths, not different paths, different options, easier options, we would think. Same exact path, the perfect path of the will of God, the happiest of lives. But there is a lot of detail that you and I have that no Old Testament or New Testament saint had in the way that you do. So if you think of, let me give you the two illustrations. Think of Google Maps, right? Google Earth. Isn't that, I mean, that, I'm, I, okay, so I am old enough to still just be astonished that that thing exists, you know? That you can look at the house I live in, and whenever the satellite image was taken, you know, I mean, you can tell kind of the general date because a certain type of car will be there, or maybe a tree was smaller, or maybe there were even people standing out in the yard. When you look at the maps on your phone or your computer and you pull up and you say directions to such and such place. Well, there's a blue line that goes there. Andrew, when he was little, used to think that the blue ball was above our car. So it really bothered him that he couldn't quite see the blue ball. Where is the blue ball, Dad? I'm like, the blue ball is not above our car, son. Yes, it is. It shows us where we're at. You look at that and you say, I want to get so-and-so place, and, and it draws the line. And then you do what? Then you do this. Wait, wait, let me see, let me see. And you enlarge it, or you zoom in. And as you zoom in, all the exits on the freeway and all the little towns and all the little streets in the little towns suddenly become visible. Is it a different road? It's the same road. But there is a lot of detail when you zoom in. The moral law of God, the Ten Commandments, that's the path of loving God and people. But you have so much more detail than just Ten Commandments. You have all that Jesus had in his Bible, and then you have the life of Christ, which was a living demonstration of what it looked like for a man to take the law of God and to obey God perfectly from love. You also have the teaching of Jesus, which ripped off, which scraped off all those layers of, of varnish that the Jews had put on the law and distorted it so that it no longer even really looked like the law. They misunderstood the whole purpose of the law. They misunderstood the way living the law would look. And so you know, they have these lists of do's and don'ts and the heart is missing and God is grieved even while they're trying to keep the specific commands. They, they miss it entirely. So you have the life of Jesus and the teachings of Jesus about what it is to love God and love people. And that's like zooming in on your Google map. More detail, same path. You also have the New Testament epistles where the apostles, by the guidance of the Spirit, write to baby Christians who many of them did not grow up in a Jewish family. 
So growing up in Gentile families, they are completely clueless about what it looks like, where the map goes. What does marriage look like? What do kids and parents look like? What does work look like? What does learning look like? What does religion look like? Worship, evangelism, sacrifice, persecution, happiness, despair. I mean, how do you walk through all those? Where's, where's the path? And so the writers take the Old Testament principles and commands and the New Testament example of Jesus and the teachings of Jesus, and they add even more detail. You zoom in even more when you read Ephesians and Colossians after those wonderful early chapters of doctrine, then it's like the Apostle Paul zooms in the map for you and you think, so that's what it looks like. Same map, same path, so much more detail. But not a different moral path, not a path that disagrees with the path that Christ walked on. My second illustration, and this I like better because I'm old. I remember traveling places using a paper map. Do you remember that? And you would have the Rand McNally map. And it, you know, I mean, it had to be big because you couldn't see detail if it was just a tiny map. And so you would open the page. Now, if you were driving by yourself, you're kind of in trouble. Either you pull over all the time or you do like I did and you drive with your knees while you look at the map and do this. But if you had a person beside you, I would hand the map to Misty and say, now tell me what, what's my next exit? Wonderful for marriage sanctification. When you miss your exit and you blame the person who has the map, who said, I told you to turn here. And you say, what? Well, yeah, when I was right there, I'm going 70, lady. I can't turn on two wheels. You're supposed to give me a heads up. You look at the map, you look at the road, you look at the map, you look at the road, paper map. So imagine Jesus Christ has given you not only a new heart, but the same map and a very old map, older than the, than the incarnation, not the year zero, but a couple thousand years before that. Thousands of years old map. And it is the same map that he used. And it is the same map that he has given to every other believer since that, from that point till today. But it is more detailed now if we think of a paper map, because we can't zoom in our paper map, think of the notes of Jesus written along the road. Watch out for this. This is what I, he was talking about. This is what pleases the Father. And there's the, there's the notes of Paul and of John and of James and of Peter. So you don't just have the, the Gospels and the teaching and all that. It's all put on the map. Same map. We must be agreed that in following Jesus in the way that he obeyed the father, that that means we will be walking by the same, the same map, the same path to love him with all our hearts, to refuse to be idolaters, to honor our parents, to love each other enough. And then all the other commands. And those are just the summaries. Same map, a lot of detail notes all along the edge that he gave us. Or zoom in on your phone. Now, that brings us to the end. Part two will be next week, all right? 
What I would like for you to do, here's some homework. In exchange for 40 more minutes, here's your homework. The homework is this. Read Psalm 119. In that psalm, you have the description of the ideal believer responding to the word of God. The psalm has a lot of things in it, but one of the things it has is all the responses. I will study, I will remember, I will keep them before my eyes, I will not forget them, I will walk in them, I will treasure them, I will delight in them, I will observe them, I will seek them. Make a list for yourself. This is a description of the perfect, the perfect response to the word of God. And that means it is a description of how Jesus of Nazareth handled his Bible. He yearned for the Father's word, delighted in the Father's word, believed the Father's word, trusted the Father's word, observed the Father's ways, ran in the paths of the Father. All those same responses, those are the responses that would have been perfectly in the life of Jesus for 33 years. Delighting in the Father's will would have resulted in him responding daily to the book that God gave him, the way the psalmist describes. One exception. There are a few verses that describe the struggle of the sinner. I need to be forgiven. I have drifted. I need you to come find me, God. Those, of course, cannot be applied to Christ. So if you will read that, then you will be ready for next week. If you make your list of the responses of Jesus to the word of the Father. As pictured indirectly, Psalm 119. Well, let me read uh, the doxology that Jude gives. And then we'll just sit for a moment of quiet and... Then we'll be dismissed. If you're a visitor, you're very welcome to stay for lunch. Jude, verse 24. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen.